Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage. I'm Alok Jha, science correspondent at The Economist. This week we'll be looking at nuclear fusion, a technology that could change the world. If we can crack it, fusion could provide an unlimited supply of clean, carbon-free energy. But it's hard to do. Scientists have been trying to make it work since the end of the Second World War. Success has always been just beyond the horizon, only a few decades away. In fact, there's a well-worn joke within the fusion community that shows just how disappointing this progress has been. Fusion energy, say the skeptics, has always been 30 years away, and it always will be. The history of fusion goes back to the British astrophysicist Arthur Eddington. He hypothesised that some kind of nuclear reaction was what made the sun shine. He was right. That process was later discovered to be nuclear fusion. And ever since, the race has been on to recreate it on Earth. But to begin, I asked Dr Melanie Winridge, a plasma physicist based in the UK, what makes fusion energy so promising? I think that achieving fusion is imperative. We need lots of energy. Our energy demands are increasing. And currently, we don't have a clean way of doing that. And fusion would offer, or fusion does offer, I don't know how you say that because we can't do it yet, but <laughs> fusion offers an abundant source of electricity, uh, baseload electricity, without greenhouse gases, without long-lived radioactive waste, and without taking up a lot of space. And so for places like cities where the energy demands are high and the amount of free space is low, I think fusion is imperative. I think that we can use renewables and we should use renewables wherever we can. It should really like be a balance. But it's questionable whether renewables alone could satisfy rising energy demands, especially in places where the demands are, are really high. Fusion offers us a sustainable baseload electricity source. So it's good for the environment and uses a fuel that's plentiful. And unlike normal nuclear energy, nuclear fission, there's no risk of a meltdown, so it's safe too. But what exactly is nuclear fusion? How does it work? Fusion is the reaction that powers the sun and the stars, and scientists have been dreaming about harnessing this reaction well, since they realised what was powering the stars. Essentially, it's the coming together of two nuclei to make a larger one. So in the stars, hydrogen comes together to make helium, and in fact that reaction, you know, it can, it's like building blocks. You can keep building up bigger and bigger particles, and in fact all the elements in the universe were, were forged in stars. So nuclear fusion is, is simply the the coming together of small particles to make larger ones. That's fine in theory, but making it work in the real world is not quite so easy. It's really difficult to get fusion reactions to happen 
simply because you have these these two particles that you want to come together are both nuclei, so they're the centres of atoms, and they're both positively charged. And so to try and get two things with the same charge to come together is like trying to get two north poles of a magnet to come together. They repel each other very strongly. And so if you want to get them to fuse, you need to get them close enough together so that something called the strong force between the nucleons can can kick in. And that's like a bit like... A bit like playing crazy golf and having to hit your ball up a small incline to get it into the hole at the top. You have to overcome this this hill, this force of repulsion between the particles before they can get close enough to fuse. So that's one reason why fusion's really hard to do. You have to get the particles moving really fast, which translates to temperature. You have to get your fuel really hot, like hundreds of millions of degrees, just to get particles to fuse. In order to create and maintain the extreme temperatures needed to make nuclei fuse, scientists have come up with two main approaches to confining the plasma, magnetic and inertial. I asked Stephen Dean of Fusion Power Associates, a group that monitors the fusion industry, to explain further. Well, inertial confinement is the process that goes on in the hydrogen bomb. You create a small amount of plasma and you compress it to an extremely high density, like a thousand times uh, higher than uh, solid density. It's a, it's a very difficult process to compress this fuel to that high of a density. It was successfully done in the hydrogen bomb, but we want to do it on a smaller scale. So inertial confinement fusion, you take an extremely small a pellet of this fuel that may be the size of a pea in a power plant, and you compress it down in a burst. You get a burst, small amount of energy. Now, in principle, this all works. It's extremely difficult to compress this pellet spherically symmetrical. It takes quite a bit of energy to do it. People use lasers. People use other techniques uh, like uh, fast pulse magnetic fields. But all the attempts so far, the uh, compressions have not been sufficiently spherically symmetric to get the burst of energy you need for fusion. So that's a a pulsed approach or mimics the hydrogen bomb, whereas the magnetic approach is a a slow, steady type of process that does this sort of continuously or semi-continuously. Uh, if it's a pulsed, it's at a slow rate. So it's not a small burst that has to be repeated rapidly. It's a bigger burst that is, comes out either steadily or uh, occasionally. So in short, magnetic confinement uses high-powered magnets to keep the hot plasma together, whereas inertial confinement compresses the plasma with lasers. But where are these technologies in the real world? And uh, we're actually very close to being able to do this, and we're starting to run the, the heat and the density of this uh, hydrogen fuel up, up towards the conditions necessary to make substantial amounts of power. And the largest of our experimental facilities is being built in France right now called ITER, I-T-E-R, and it's a joint international venture of seven international parties. ITER is a large international program in order to demonstrate the feasibility of fusion technologies. Probably one of the biggest scientific and technological challenges that human race had to face. In the sun, the pressure is very high. To get that same kind of collision of, of 
of nuclei. We need really high temperatures. 150 million degrees in ITER. It's quite hot. Probably going to be the hottest point in the universe right here in, in Kadaha. And when it is completed, uh, starts operation in like 2025, it will make like 500 megawatts of fusion power for pulses lasting about 15 minutes. And it's a prototype for the machine after that that we hope would be able to make electricity. ITER is a giant fusion reactor under construction in the south of France. Owned by 35 countries, it's meant to be the world's make-or-break experiment to finally show that fusion is a viable way to produce power. At its heart is a steel vessel called a tokamak. Remember that word. It'll weigh more than 23,000 tonnes. That's three times the weight of the Eiffel Tower. And it'll cost at least $20 billion by the time it's finished. It's not had a smooth history. So the ITER project was launched in 1985. It could have been started to be built and built in the 1990s, but because of the international character of it, it took a long time for everybody to agree on the design and where to put it. And so it wasn't until 2006, actually, <laughs> 20 years later, the device actually started to go into serious engineering design and construction at Cotterage. And uh, the next phase of that history from 2006 till now, which is 15 years, it shouldn't have taken 15 years, but what happened was as they got into the detailed design and engineering and who was going to build what, it turned out that this was going to be more complicated. The, the design was not complete. Technology was not fully developed. And the thing was that the estimated cost of it went up by at least a factor of four, maybe more. And the time scale stretched out at least another 10 years and uh, so we're at a situation where right now it seems to be on track for a 2025 turn-on date, but the plan is to study it for another 10 years at low power before you try to go full power. For the optimistic, ITER is an example of how so many countries from around the world can collaborate to achieve a lofty long-term ambition. For cynics, it's a boondoggle plagued by delays. But nowadays, ITER isn't alone in trying to achieve fusion energy. An increasing number of private sector upstarts are now saying that they will be the first to bring fusion energy to the grid, potentially decades before ITER. So we're charging uh, these capacitors here. So these blue, big blue cans that you can see in front of you are uh, energy storage capacitors. In Oxfordshire is one of those companies, First Light Fusion. Chief Executive and co-founder Nicholas Hawker took me on a tour of Machine 3, his latest prototype for the company's technology. We then discharge all of that simultaneously through some... Whereas ITER will use magnets to confine its plasma, First Light Fusion wants to use an as-yet-untested form of inertial confinement to compress its plasma up to fusion conditions. So what we do is we launch a high-velocity projectile at our fuel pellet, which we call the target. Um, so for the projectile, the velocity is the most important parameter. Uh, the total energy of the projectile matters as well, but the velocity is basically how quickly it delivers that energy to the target. We launch the projectile electromagnetically, and that's quite a big machine that we have to do that, but it's a very simple machine, much simpler than the uh, machines that other fusion uh, ideas need. 
a, it's a huge donut and it's a very, very complicated machine to build. And I'm sure they, they, that it will be built and that it will work, but it is taking a long time simply from scale and complexity. The key thing for us is that we need to demonstrate fusion from our idea for the, uh, for the first time. So fusion in the, in the real world in the lab has never been done with projectile fusion before. And so that's why this year is, is a huge year for us. Uh, we've built the fusion demonstrator, shots are ongoing, and we're, we're very confident we're going we're gonna to find the result. If we can get that result, and if our simulations are proved right, then we think all of the onward technology can be much simpler. So that's the key thing for us, is to, is to get that result. First Light Fusion's ideas are radical, and for now, unproven. But Dr. Hawker is convinced it'll work. The next milestone, which he expects to reach some point in 2019, is to demonstrate that his system actually causes the nuclei in the fuel to fuse. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Our two unique technologies are a spherical tokamak using high-temperature superconducting magnets. Down the road in Oxfordshire is Tokamak Energy, a company using technology very similar to the ITER mega project in France. David Kingham, the company's executive vice chairman, told us about his approach. So we are aiming for 100 million degrees or higher plasma temperatures. At 100 million degrees or higher plasma temperatures. At 100 million degrees, we start to see very significant numbers of fusion reactions, and we need to get up to those high temperatures, get the density of the plasma up as well, and then we need to be able to hold it in a stable configuration for extended lengths of time. One of the challenges is to initiate the plasma And we have used a technique called merging compression to create plasma rings in our spherical tokamak and then essentially to crash the plasma rings together to create a hot plasma. And that technique we basically perfected and it will produce plasmas up to 15 million degrees proven so far. To get up to 100 million degrees, we will need to add additional sources of heating. After the device we're currently working on, the ST40, to build a prototype power plant that would produce industrial-scale heat by 2025, that would use the latest generation of high-temperature superconducting magnets the spherical tokamak configuration, which is is very efficient. We then anticipate a further five years until 2030, when we'll be able to deliver electricity into the grid. These are just two companies entering the field of fusion power. There are a dozen more in the US and Canada, all trying to achieve fusion with bespoke designs. 
several billion dollars has been invested and optimism is high. However, Stephen Dean of Fusion Power Associates is cautious. Now, these new ventures are all being done with credible people, smart people. They all have a physics basis of some sort, of some degree. But the history of uh, the tokamak is that when you do it at the small scale, the performance of the small scale facilities, when you try to scale them up, often gives you surprises. And so these small companies are at fairly small scale compared to, say, Eater or some of the bigger tokamaks that are in operation in terms of performance. And they have to scale these up, and they have two issues. One is raising enough money to scale these up, and two is when they scale them up, will there be some physics surprises that happen, like those that happened to the tokamak when we scaled it up and we had to solve them before we could go on? And uh, that was always a history of fusion. Each time we got a good result, we scaled up and didn't anticipate any problems, but almost always there were some problems that slowed everything down while we fixed them. And so uh, you cannot be sure in, uh, in fusion and in fusion physics that uh, you can just assume that these problems are not going to arise. The answer will lie somewhere between the two, and it will be a combination of both public and private. I spoke to Bernard Bigot, Director General of the ETER project. It's good to explore all these things. In such a way, we get maybe complementary knowledge about the plasma behavior, the way the plasma could work, and all these things. But from my point of view, I don't believe it is okay, achievable to produce energy. It would be nice to uh, have this uh, new knowledge coming out of uh, their investment, but from the point of view of physics, is uh, is not realistic at all. But maybe a breakthrough will come on in. I could not say no. Okay, it will be uh, not uh, serious to say science will not be able to cross okay the border of the knowledge we have right now. But I discuss a lot with my colleague, which are the scientists and all these people, and they say, as of myself, Bernard, the physics is not there in order to be able to achieve it. So how far away are we from these projects actually happening? Tokamak Energy and First Light Fusion both think they'll be up and running by 2030. In its current plans, Stephen Dean of Fusion Power Associates says that ITER won't be that far behind. So full power right now is aimed for 2035. Uh, but, you know, maybe they can get there a little earlier than that. The private companies are not really interested in this ITER-like machine. The cost of this ITER facility going up as high as it did and the size of the ITER facility worries people who are thinking about the scale of, and cost of a power plant. You know, when the power plants come online for fusion, they're going to have to compete with the existing power plants. Right now, you can buy a full-scale, large commercial electric power plant and nuclear for probably $5 billion probably a coal plant for maybe a half of that. And if ITER were built like it is today as a power plant, it would probably cost at least twice that of the nuclear power plant. And so would anybody buy it if it costs twice as much? So the private sector people that are coming in now that are working on these other ideas to see if there's a way with the knowledge we've developed over these many years to rejuvenate some of the older ideas and add some new wrinkles to them, 
to see if there's a way to do all of this in a smaller facility uh, that would cost less. Today, with so many companies competing, there's a lot of optimism. And all it'll take is for one of these private or public attempts to show signs of success. If these various projects can, through a combination of competition and collaboration, push and cajole each other forward to realise the dream of fusion energy, the world's electricity supply will be guaranteed and carbon-free forever. That's all for this episode of Babbage. If you like what you've heard, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to take out a subscription to The Economist, just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.